Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton and contributing editor to the Acton Institute, Emily Zanotti. This week, we'll discuss the passing of controversial college basketball coaching legend Bobby Knight and how almost $10 million in student debts was wiped out at Morehouse College. But first, I want to go to a vacant office space. There are a lot of those in major cities right now, and there are going to be even more of them because it is widely expected this week that WeWork is going to file for bankruptcy. Uh, this uh, being reported here about five days ago from Reuters. Uh, shares of the flexible workspace provider fell 32% in extended trading after the Wall Street Journal first reported the news. They have fallen roughly 96% this year. New York-based WeWork is considering filing a Chapter 11 petition in New Jersey, the Wall Street Journal reported, citing people familiar with the matter. WeWork declined to comment. Uh, earlier on uh, Tuesday of last week, WeWork said it had entered into an agreement with creditors for temporary postponement of payments for some of its debts with the grace period nearing the an end. Now, the company had net long-term debt of $2.9 billion as of June uh, and more than $13 billion in long-term leases at a time when rising borrowing costs are hurting the commercial real estate sector. I would add here also some commentary from Dominic Pino, who is at National Review, who I thought made a kind of interesting point about this. Uh, WeWork, which leases office space and sells it to companies and individuals who use it on a shared basis, might be the ultimate zero interest rate phenomenon. There are business ideas that make sense when you can borrow money for free that no longer make sense when money has a price. For a decade, the Federal Reserve held interest rates near zero, and businesses such as WeWork sprang up. These businesses never had to clear plans to actually make a profit. I just want to note here, there are a lot of Silicon Valley stories like this, including one that we may you may have seen about a decrease in its total valuation. This company, now called X, that used to be called Twitter, that I believe is now valued at about $18 billion, uh, as opposed to the 44 that Elon Musk bought it for. Coming back to Dominic's piece here. Uh, such businesses could exist when borrowing was essentially costless, but now reality has reemerged and interest rates are positive again. So he, his characterization here is that WeWork's demise is a sign that monetary policy is working. We're leaving zero, uh, the zero interest rate world that some thought was permanent. Higher interest rates are needed right now to reduce inflation, but they'll also have positive long-term effects to discipline investors and corporations to make smarter decisions. So... I found that bit of analysis uh, somewhat interesting. I think it's worth noting as well that the 
catastrophic effects of COVID on the commercial real estate market are also a big culprit here. Uh, New York City's corporate occupancy rate has been falling. I know Chicago's has as well. There have been conversations in Chicago on the LaSalle Street corridor, which uh, if you don't think you're familiar with that, but you've seen the movie The Dark Knight, that's where the big truck race scene ends up. And he finally captures the Joker. Uh, They've been talking about turning some of those commercial plots, some of those commercial levels of these high-rises into apartments. Uh, That would be interesting to see how that works. But I've – you know, I kind of thought about this from the beginning of the pandemic that if you're BMO Harris in downtown Chicago and you've got 11 floors of an office tower – On the other side of this, again, always presuming that people were eventually going to come back to the office, but you were never going to put that genie back in the bottle, right, where you were going to have people in the office full-time five days per week. They've been struggling to figure out what the balance is going to be, but I didn't think you were ever going to get fully back to that. So you were going to have a need for, I don't know, five, six of those floors maybe, plus some office hoteling. So you were going to have this glut of open commercial office space and no idea of who was going to fill it. So I think WeWork is a victim of that as well. But I think Dominic's point about the kind of business plan that makes sense when you can borrow money for free, making a lot less sense when money isn't free, does seem to be a huge contributor to a company that always struck me as trying to solve a problem that didn't really seem to exist, like that people didn't have a place to go and work. Um, so I, I, I just found the story interesting uh, in that I think Dominic is right, that it is an interesting characterization of this period of time of company ideas and investments that made a lot of sense in one set of circumstances, that one small change basically obliterates the business plan. So I actually work some days a week through a WeWork. And um, it's great if you work from home and you need a different space to go. But I think the whole point of it was the idea that people were going to work from home and they wanted a separate space with the same camaraderie as an office, but without having to, you know, go to a job every single day. Or if your job went remote, like, or your job went freelance or whatever, you could have this other space. Um, but, you know, kids went back to school, so you're not tackling Zoom any longer. And I think it took a lot of people to realize that other people are the worst part of going to work. Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but like, you know, people didn't just didn't have the appetite to recreate that um and the WeWork gives a lot of perks but it scaled back a lot of perks like it used to be free food it used to be free drinks it used to be free coffee um and now it's not as effusive with all of the stuff so I think it's a problem or a solution in search of a problem that previously existed and now doesn't this isn't even the first one of these I think that's gone out of business there was one that was like specifically for women um, the wing and that went out of business very quickly. So it's like a lot of strategies. It just is a solution in search of a problem. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of factors. I mean, you know, 10, 12 years ago, uh, it made more sense, uh, that people wanted office space, uh, but maybe not every day a week, or maybe they couldn't afford a whole office, but if they could just 
lease a portion of it. So, you know, you have this kind of subletting model to it. Or just you um, need... For like a startup, you know, or something like that. They're like, you're... You need you're, a short term. Yeah, yeah. Or you need a short term, right? Um, that we want, we want, we're going to use this space until we really, you know, get to the point where we can have our own office, that that kind of thing. Um that makes sense in a in a in a world where that's just the expectation that businesses have offices, um, and uh, I think to your point, to me, COVID is is probably the biggest factor here in that it showed that you just don't need that. Um, people were forced, as you know, as Emily put it, with having to deal with their kids at home, they were forced to figure out a way to make work work at home. And when you do that, you realize, huh, saved a lot of money, not renting that office every month, right? Um, it's the same thing with, with offices in general. As you mentioned, um, you know, because of COVID, a lot of downtowns are, you know, drastically changing. Um, it is not over. In fact, it's probably going to be a decade or so of transformation for especially, you know, the bigger cities with a lot of regulation in terms of zoning and things like that. But I think we're going to see a lot of that. Hopefully, it'll be something positive in terms of um, our shortage of housing, um, if a lot of these spaces are converted to apartments. Um, but it, it's something that it's, you know, I when COVID started, I would told people the world would never be the same. And my wife called me like a doomsayer, but like, oh, you know, not to criticize her too much, but millions of people died. So A, it was yes. an absolutely tragic event. But B, we have adjusted our lives in a million tiny ways that have become normalized, um, that were unthinkable in 2019. In 2019, I had a fr- I have a friend who works for Microsoft. In 2019, they required him to live in Seattle and go into the office and work every day. He's a programmer. He works on a computer. Um, COVID happened, and they realized, oh, everybody's still working from home, and our state-of-the-art office space apparently contribute nothing to productivity, right? They, they thought it would. They thought, oh, if we let people work at home, they're going to slack off and they're, you know, it's, it's, they're not going to be able to do teamwork and all this sort of stuff. No dip in productivity at all. So they said, you know what? You guys can live wherever you want. We'll just adjust your pay for cost of living. And, you know, so now he lives here in town. We get to see him again and it's great. Um, but that that was unthinkable before COVID. Um, and it was it was a really strange kind of backwards outdated thing that even a company like Microsoft, uh, which certainly could even afford to try, was not willing to try. Um, they were they were so locked into this idea, we have to have this perfect office space for our business. Um, so there's just this huge paradigm shift of what it looks like to have a successful business in you know the post-2020 world. Um, with technology we already had, it shouldn't have required an office in many, many cases. And uh, you have a company that their bread and butter um, was startups and was, you know, smaller businesses and people needing office space. And suddenly people realize, especially those people realize they don't need it. And, you know, I'm not surprised the company uh, really struggled to make a profit. Emily's point about how, you know, you're trying to recreate the camaraderie that you have in an office place, but you're trying to do it in this environment with, you know, short-term rentals and these kind of one-off places that people would come and work just to get some work done, you know, kind of what Emily's doing. So, she, you know, she's not there with, you know, an, an enterprise or, uh, a, you know, the startup, you know, uh, members of a corporation that you're working on. It's just you. 
when you kind of realize that the the difference there in terms of the camaraderie that exists in an office place that you know I felt here at Acton and previous places where I've worked is predicated on the fact that like we see each other and work together on a regular basis. You know, otherwise really all that a WeWork becomes to you is just a dedicated place to go mix and mingle. And I don't know what everybody else's disposition is like, but, you know, if I don't, one, I don't already know the people that are in the space that I'm going to be working in. It's not like I go around the Starbucks and start introducing myself to people and trying to build up some camaraderie. I don't know why I would do it in this short-term leased corporate office space as well. So you're you're not going to be able to really replicate that experience because it is based on the familiarity that you're going to have with seeing the same people on a regular basis and collaborating with them, which you're you're just not going to do with, you know, Dave who runs a consultancy in some industry completely detached from the kind of thing that you work on. So there was there's that problem with it. And as Emily mentioned as well, the kind of Googleification of the office space where you're going to have free drinks and free coffee and free food and here's a ping pong table and all of that. And like, yeah, some of that is cool, but you find out really quickly the things that, you know, don't matter all that much to people within a work environment and even what those things tend to be evocative of, right? You know, I'm sure everybody has seen the memes that, uh, you know, like a difficult week at the office and here comes your boss with pizzas instead of a raise or anything like that. It's it's a little too evocative of like, but there's free food here. And it's like, okay, but, you know, it, it's not also meeting the needs that I have. So I, I understand from of the much smaller version of all of this, right? So like if you are, you know, you don't want to be doing it out of your garage or nobody has in like the place like Chicago or New York City, a garage or place large enough for people to get together if you're working on a startup project like this. So rather than signing a and corporate office space typically are longer leases, rather than signing something like that, you can sublet uh, a segment of space for a period of time, which is why, in all likelihood, WeWork is not entirely going out of business, right? You know, this is a old saw of mine and should be of many people, but we have this misunderstanding of bankruptcy that largely, I think, comes from people having played Monopoly as a child, because when you go bankrupt in Monopoly, the game is over for you, right? As opposed to the reality of bankruptcy, which is companies frequently come out on the other side, much better run companies, because it allows them to deal with the mistakes they made in the past, to order the creditors and the order that they're going to get paid to restructure their debts so that they can continue on as a company. It's a supervised corporate restructuring. Yes. So we always assume it's like Wheel of Fortune. You hit the black space on the wheel and everything's gone. Um, but essentially, bankruptcy isn't the end of a company. It's basically like, we're going to protect you from creditors for this extent of this amount of time. And then you're going to come back and you're going to figure out whether you have at your core a working proposition or you need to go out of business. And a lot of these VC-backed um, startups are kind of like that. You see a lot of them hitting that skid right now. So all of these box items and subscription models that were seemed really great in the beginning and did really well through COVID because nobody wanted to go anywhere. Um, those are all kind of falling by the wayside. Um internet-based clothing companies, um, and a lot of it being replaced by things like 
Timu and DHgate where you can order directly from Chinese suppliers. So why would I go to Amazon to order my cheap Chinese junk when I can order my cheap Chinese junk from China? Um, so there's a there's a there's a whole restructuring of this entire sort of VC model at the moment and whatever you seem to think is like a social media phenomenon or a social phenomenon of this post-COVID age, a lot of that's being rethought now. Well, I think a lot of this too, and Dylan, I'd be curious for your thoughts on the Dominic Pino's piece of all of this, that the difference between when money is essentially free and when money has a price. As I know, you see a lot of this in uh, Silicon Valley type ventures that were funded largely with, you know, with the idea of we'll figure out later on how to make money. And I do want to point out that essentially this was Twitter. The way that Twitter was financed in the beginning, it was like, yeah, we'll kind of figure out how to make money later on. And the biggest problem that they always had was, well, Facebook pretty effectively figured out how to monetize the product. Now, you can love or you can hate that or be indifferent to it. But um, from the perspective of a marketer like myself, the ad platform that Facebook provided was like one of the great democratizing things in commerce is that it allowed these smaller companies with a smaller spend, you know, one-off mom and pop kind of places to be able to find customers pretty reliably. They found a way to monetize that in a way that Twitter, now X, really never did. And, you know, we work largely, again, basing off of uh, Dominic Pino's analysis here, seems like another one of those companies that it was like, you know, this seems like a really good idea of thing that people will need. Okay, how are you planning to make money for all of this? Give us some money now. We'll figure it out a little further down the road. And they really never figured it out a little further down the road, it seems. Yeah, so I think it's important to say that like failure is a good thing in an economy and it's it's kind of a hard thing to grasp because you think this is a giant company and really they I can't remember the amount but it's something like 42 uh, million square feet of office space they own which seems like the wrong unit of measurement to me but uh, but you know just some massive amount uh, that they're they're leasing out and all of that um, and to say wow if they failed you know that's got to be bad for the economy. Well, no, you know, as, as you guys pointed out, the company will be restructured and something will happen with those spaces. Um, those assets will be better, more optimally used by other businesses. So as far as the the financing, um, I, you know, I'm not a big monetary policy guy. I've co-written with economists who are uh, precisely because I'm not. Um, but certainly that affects things in terms of um, borrowing from the government and what what you know, the Fed can actually control, but banks still have to do their own calculation of risk. Investors still have to do their own calculation. So I don't know. I think this is partly just that sell of, hey, isn't this a good idea? Of course, it'll make money someday. And I can't really fault them for that because that's what every business says at the start. I mean, to some degree, an entrepreneur is someone acting on intuition. And this is usually this really good intuition, but they can't, if they could write it all out for you ahead of time, this is Frank Knight's insight about, uh, about entrepreneurship is that in uncertainty and risk is that there are just no unknown unknowns. Uh, and the entrepreneur is just a person that's really good at like feeling those things out, judging the reliability of other people and, you know, all this kind of really non-tangible, non-measurable stuff. Um, but that's just not always going to work. And that's the nature of it. And it's a good thing to have an economy where people can try and fail. Um, both those things are essential 
being able to try and being able to fail. Um, that's what has contributed to this amazing uh, increase in wealth over the last 250 years of uh, creative destruction. People try new something new. A lot of times it fails, but sometimes it absolutely revolutionizes the way in which we do life and in such a way that literally everyone is better off. So like the blacksmith is better off because of the automobile, right? Which is hard to think about because their whole livelihood gets decimated by that for the most part. Um, but you know what? They can now travel a whole lot faster between cities and a whole lot more reliably. Um, you know, it's the the not just the worker or not just the the rich person, but the worker was able to buy the Model T. And uh, you can go on and on and on, trucking and shipping and pizza delivery and whatever the case may be. So we need this. And I, I you know, it's a story to look at. Okay, what went wrong? Um, and there's real criticisms here. I mean, obviously, a, a business fails. They did something wrong, um, but. It doesn't mean that the economy is in trouble. Um, it doesn't really mean this is a bad thing. Um, it does mean that we're living in a different world than we were 12 years ago. Um, and I think that you know, entrepreneurs today, and even you know those involved at WeWork who are part of the restructuring, who are going to you know hopefully put in some effort to try to keep it uh, you know above water um, afterwards, uh, they need to take all that into account uh, if they they want to be successful in the economy as it is today. This is one of the reasons why I would very much like to remove a lot of the stigma that surrounds the term bankruptcy and the concept of bankruptcy. That, again, we, we recognize it as this sign of just failure, and even to the point of what you were talking about, Dylan, that the – you, you have these stories of these incredible entrepreneurial successes, uh, you know, of, of starting Apple Computer in a garage and it turns into the largest computer company in the entire world. And you have these stories of catastrophic failure <clears throat> of, of companies that became something really, really huge and the bubble burst and it becomes absolutely nothing. Like, you know, we, we're all old enough, I think, to remember Pets.com, right? Like, I think, what was that? Um it, it was redolent of a time and a place where a lot of things seemed possible that actually turned out the intuition was wrong. Uh, people were not going to shop that way. So I would like to remove a lot of that stigma that surrounds – not just stigma but misunderstanding that surrounds bankruptcy. This is why I, I always bristle when you hear proposals. They come up every once in a while from legislators trying to make it more difficult to file for bankruptcy. Well, on one hand, you do not want it to be so easy to clear away bad mistakes and old debts that it incentivizes a recklessness in people. You do want it to be possible and you want it to be probably easier than it is difficult because this is what fosters and helps to foster the entrepreneurial culture that exists in this country that makes that I want to say makes it comports with the American sensibility the uh, the idea of American exceptionalism properly understood that makes us greater risk takers than a lot of other places because there are ways to deal with failure in a positive and productive way. So we have every reason to suspect that WeWork is going to come out on the other side of this still as a company, still holding some of that office space and still serving a need that exists out there, but a little bit more right-sized for the actual demand that it is discovered it actually exists out there and hopefully on the other side with an ability to make some money. But we should really remove the scariness around the either monopoly or wheel of fortune induced 
belief around bankruptcy that it is just this catastrophic thing and everything is terrible if it happens. It's not good. You don't want to go through it, but it's good to have it there. It's also a necessary part of the entrepreneurial ebb and flow, right? So you're always going to have money chasing innovation. When the money dries up, innovation changes. And so you talk about the free market and we want the free market to decide these things, but then we want to cut people off from the ability to say, I did something wrong, but I don't want to go out of business. I want to reconnect with what the market looks like right now. And yes, I took on some bad debts. Yes, I had a bad idea, but a good idea could be born out of a bad idea. Um, you know, failure is always seen as a as a wall, but so many of these people who have done these amazing things have failed multiple times. And, you know, it's a fluke that an idea is successful. So, you know, really, we want to make sure that people understand and that people understand business evolves. You know, you look at Amazon and what Amazon started out as books and Netflix started out as DVDs by mail and they've gotten bad, they've gotten good, they've had years of profit, years of not profit. Um, but that's something that now we rely on day to day in our in our lives. So we want to make sure that the ebb and flow of business is allowed to happen because otherwise you're saying, you know, if you don't have this idea, you're not going to and you know it may fail, those people aren't going to take the same risk any longer. And we need to know like there's an ability to step back and get rid of some bad debt and, and go again. Yeah, and you don't you don't know what companies are eventually going to turn into, and Amazon's a perfect example of that. That starts as essentially an online bookseller, and turns into the world's largest logistics company. I mean, you wouldn't have known that at the very beginning, but you know the the track that businesses are going to take isn't always predictable. Yeah. So the, the one of the other dangers with kind of the the monopoly wheel of fortune way of looking at it is those are entirely a matter of chance, a roll of the dice, a spin of the wheel. And it does not factor in human agency and, and thus human dignity. Um, in the real world, as F.A. Hayek put it, competition is a discovery procedure. And there are people doing the discovery. It is important information to have market mechanisms working properly, um, including things like failure and bankruptcy, so that people can learn from it. And no one ever learned anything by getting it right all the time. That's just not how learning works. You try and you fail and you figure out what you did wrong and then you get better. Um, any musician will tell you that, any artist, any athlete, any any just academically uh, high achieving person will tell you, yeah, I have. they might have some raw talent, um, but it's not magic. You, there's a lot of hard work and part of that process of hard work is trying and failing and learning from your mistakes. And it's as important for the economy and the business world as it is for everything else in life. Let's move on to our next topic. Reading here from an article from ESPN, Bob Knight, whose Hall of Fame career was highlighted by three national titles in Indiana, one capping an undefeated season not since matched, and countless on-court outbursts has died. He was 83. Knight's family made the announcement Wednesday night. He was hospitalized with an illness in April and had been in poor health for several years. Knight became the youngest coach at a Division I school in 1965 when he broke in at Army at 24 years old. 
But he made his mark at Indiana, including winning a school record 661 games and reaching the NCAA tournament 24 times in 29 seasons. Knight's first NCAA title came in 1976 when Indiana went undefeated, a feat no team has accomplished since. He won 20 or more games in a season 29 times, compiling, compiling a career record of 902 and 371. He also coached the U.S. Olympic team to a gold medal at the 1984 Olympics. Uh, but one of the things that, of course, Bob Knight is going to be remembered for is the off-court or court-adjacent things, uh, the outbursts that was mentioned uh, previously. Knight was eventually forced out of Indiana in 2000 for violating a, quote, zero-tolerance behavior policy by grabbing the arm of a freshman student whom he said uh, greeted him by his last name. It was the final transgression on a long list, which included his most famous incident, throwing a chair during a Purdue game, and accusations of numerous physical confrontations. The most notable involved Knight apparently choking player Neil Reed at practice in 1997. There's a great ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on Bobby Knight that I highly recommend called The Last Days of Knight that uh, takes... The journalist whose name is escaping me at the moment, who was the first one to start investigating these accusations against Knight, really looking into why three highly recruited basketball players had chosen to leave Indiana in the 1990s. Uh, this was also covered, and I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes as well, in an episode of the uh, podcast The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill by Christianity Today and Mike Cosper, uh, kind of examining the question that I really want to talk about, which is... This kind of these kinds of leaders, people like Bob Knight, people like Mark Driscoll, who was the pastor being examined in the rise and fall of Mars Hill. This kind of ends justifies the means mentality that exists around them. There, there is this anecdote about Knight that I believe it was someone who had written a column about some of Knight's behavior and some of his tactics, which again, leading up, you know, kind of through the mid-90s was undeniable. He was an incredibly successful basketball coach. And the end of the column asked the question, you know, do the ends justify the means? And apparently Knight had cut it out and sent it back to the columnist who wrote it and scrawled at the bottom on it, they absolutely do. And you see that in Bobby Knight's behavior in the way that he treated other people. Uh, it is not a coincidence, I don't think, that he started at Army uh, because the mentality that he imbued into his basketball team at Indiana was very similar to what the Army does in trying to break the player down entirely and then build them back up in the mode that he wanted them to be. What becomes interesting is the point at which Success doesn't paper over these problems anymore. And I think it's impossible to ignore that the period of time that led up to Knight finally being fired by Indiana for these kinds of incidents that we we know of having happened because they were on tape in the 90s, but we can likely believe similar things probably happened in the past as well, also happened to coincide with when he was becoming less effective as a basketball coach, the game kind of moved by him. He was doing these the same kinds of things, playing the same kind of offense and defense that he had and wasn't getting the results anymore. And I think you see Knight's reaction to that in these outbursts in that it can't be me. 
I'm doing the same thing that's always worked. It's got to be your fault. And it is really a failure of leadership uh, to take accountability and to be able to, just as we were talking about in the last segment, to be able to adapt with changing circumstances. But I, I think the story, and this is why I recommend that documentary to people, of the failures of leadership and really just how powerful somebody like Bobby Knight had become at the University of Indiana, that even like the university president was famously kicked out of a practice at one point in time, which you wouldn't think would be a power that the coach would have over the president of the university, who's the one who decides whether or not he has a job, really showed just how, I think, how much people will ignore when success is coming. That there, there are a lot of things they're willing to look the other way on and say, yeah, 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 let's not pay attention to that. We're winning right now. And you see where these things eventually end up in the firing of Bobby Knight in, you know, the Mark Driscoll no longer being a pastor at Mars Hill, although he has found a place to once again be a pastor in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Bobby Knight went on to coach at uh, Texas Tech. So there are places and I think there are opportunities for redemption but I don't think in this case either these players showed much contrition for the things that ultimately led to their demise at the first place that they were at. So Lord Acton said power tends to corrupt, um, and that, that is absolutely true. Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. However, power also attracts the corrupted. Um, and in the case of Driscoll, perhaps also in the case of Knight, um, I think you— I mean, there were early warning signs for anyone paying attention with Driscoll, at the very least, that something was off about this man's character. Um, and as, at least for a pastor, although certainly with the leadership position of a coach, uh, often coaches will pray before a game. You know, they're kind of like pastors for the team, uh, you know, in many cases. Um, this is something that matters. And this is something that really ought to be a metric of success. Um, you might have an undefeated season. Um, but have you built up those players in a positive way? Have you modeled uh, the good life to them? Um, that should matter. And I realize that's hard to say, you know, both on the sports side, of course, when you play sports, winning is the point. And, and it is the point. It's important to, you know, have that motive of competing and winning. Um with churches, uh, especially Driscoll and the, the sort of non-denominational, seeker-friendly church uh, that he was pastor of. He was not the only one. There's many stories like his. Um, and their whole point was evangelism. And so how did they measure evangelism? Well, numbers. How many people were showing up? How many people were, you know, c responding to altar calls uh, and saying, I'm going to be a Christian when before I never was? Um you would want this to be a success, um, but it's a, a kind of success that cuts out the most meaningful and important aspect of our lives. The whole point of salvation from a traditional Christian perspective is actually to make us more like God. Um, the primary thing about God is that he is good. Um, so I don't know. I, I Indiana loves Hoosier basketball, um, I, and I, I don't blame anyone from Indiana for being a fan or anything like that. But that that love can really shield people to, uh, you know, some of the very concerning abuses that were going on. Um, and just as a contrast, uh, I grew up. I'm born, raised here in Grand Rapids. Not much of a basketball fan, but I did watch NFL football. The Lions are having a good season this year, but for most of my life. 
not many good seasons. But when I was a kid, we had this guy on the team called Barry Sanders. We had other good players too. But Barry Sanders, I would put money on that he is the best running back to have ever played the game. Uh, Barry Sanders could have played for any team. He played for the Lions. The Lions usually got, maybe got into the playoffs on a wild card, lost the first round, never made it to a Super Bowl when he was on the team. He got within distance, uh, you know, very reasonable distance of breaking Walter Payton's rushing record. Walter Payton was his hero. He had easily a few more years in him uh, playing. He only played, I believe, for 10 years. Um, And he retired because he respected his hero and he didn't want to break his record. This is just a man who, for whom winning was not the measure of success. Um, But if you poll anyone today, any football fan, ask, you know, top five greatest running backs, Barry Sanders will be on that list. Um, And I think coaches should think the same way. And I think uh, to your point that the the more he let this get to him and the more uh, his lack of self-discipline, um, you know, came to expression, the more it infected his team. And it actually did bring them down in terms of their performance. Um, it, you know, it's probably a feedback loop, you know, first seeing that his approach wasn't quite working like he used to. But then, I mean, how can you possibly perform well when you are constantly around this toxic person who's in charge? Um, and so uh, these things work together. And I think it's worthwhile, you know, to ask, you know, what's going on with our team culture? Um are we raising up individuals that when other teams play against them, they say, yeah, we won, but, you know, those guys deserved it more than us, right? You know, like you, you build this sort of ethos um, and, and maybe you start to attract the talent. Maybe suddenly you have the young, you know, high school stars saying, well, I really want to be a part of that school um, and that team. Um, instead of, as you mentioned, uh, you know, young stars saying, you know what, this may be the best basketball, college basketball team in the country, but I'm going somewhere else. Um, and, you know, the same thing with this church imploding, uh, Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church. Yeah, it attracted a lot of people who want to be a part of it, who, again, I think had good ideals, um, but they found out the reality was very, very different. Uh, that article mentions the confrontation they had with Mark Driscoll over his treatment of other pastors' wives. Um and it was just, you know, he was playing the victim. I mean, classic narcissistic behavior. Either he's the hero or the victim, right? So he was playing the, the victim through the whole thing, and it couldn't possibly be that he was a problem, that he needed to change. That's a big red flag for anybody, um, even more so for a pastor who, like Jesus, should be spe- preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you don't know how to repent, I don't know how you know how to preach it. Um, And if you have a pastor who does not know how to repent, you probably should not be following their advice. There's a point in both of these places where the focus of the main character shifted from winning or shifted from the job they were hired to do to being that main character. And so, you know, we talk a lot about servant leadership and entrepreneurial um, environments and, and all of that. But I think there's a diminishing return on this sort of overbearing, I am God, you will listen to me kind of management style, because it seems like a good idea at first. And I think it does get immediate results, which pushes it back onto people. Um, But the culture of fear can only last for so long because people will come out of those situations traumatized and they'll come out and say, yeah, I won, but it wasn't worth my life. Um, Go somewhere where the program is good. Go somewhere where what the fruit of the program is good. Um, 
but even with Mars Hill, it it when you have that person at the center, um, they start to become this character that they're portrayed, and the focus no longer becomes on I've got to run this church correctly. I've got to bring people in. The focus is on look at me. That happened in Hillsong too. That there's there's sort of a trend of this where there's no specific rules to these denominations, and everything is basically based on how many people, how many butts are in the seats. Um, you see this in the Catholic Church kind of happening in Germany, um, where the focus is on butts in the seats uh, because the state of Germany pays the church um, for how many people belong to it, and so the focus has shifted between this wonderful thing and this focus on God and this focus on, on what should happen. And, and now it's on how deeply can I water this down so that more people show up on Sunday. So I think it's a, it's, it's a law of diminishing returns. I am going to make uh, an analogy here to hockey and probably alienate 98% of the listeners of this program, but bear with me. Um, The point that you were making about, you know, in, in sports, winning matters, but how you do it also matters because there's a question of sustainability. And uh, people who know me know I'm uh, a big NHL hockey fan and a fan of the New York Rangers. And for years, the Rangers had the best goaltender of his generation, Henrik Lundqvist. And the teams that they built around him, we would always look at the ways of analyzing those teams and see that if you take the truly elite level goaltending out of it, this is not a team that can sustain winning. They were doing things that if they continued to play in that way, a normal team over the course of an 82-game season is going to lose more games than they are going to win. But they are being carried by just one individual playing absolutely out of his mind and absolutely at the top of the game, of his game. It matters how you build the team around that because you can look at other franchises that won championships with goaltenders that were not nearly as good as Henrik Lundqvist was, but they were a much more well-rounded and well-constructed team. So how you do it matters. So Emily's point about you know incentives clearly mattering in Germany and in the uh, non-denominational evangelical world of trying to get – and they talk about this in the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast – when the focus be, becomes numbers – how many people can we get into the building over the course of a weekend for church services? It becomes less about the objective of why you have a church in the first place and more just a numbers game to see how many more people can we possibly get in here. There's something also that I think is obviously true of the way that these people that we've identified at some point moved beyond the accountability structure that existed that was supposed to contain them, right? So, like, you know, the uh, for for people who are waiting on the bingo card, the Yuval Levin question of given my role here, what should I do, is clearly not one that is being asked by leaders like Bobby Knight. Clearly not being asked by leaders like Mark Driscoll. Uh, they are more interested in serving 
their own interests and they begin to identify their interests as the organization's interests, that they are one and the same. And this is a problem that a lot of organizations have when they are founded or led by the single charismatic individual, that a lot of those organizations do not have success beyond that single charismatic individual because they were built on that individual elite performance rather than to have built a a team, a church, a company that is sustainable on its own that can be handed off, where the leadership is thinking about that very important thing of, you know, if I'm not here tomorrow, does this whole thing fall apart or have I set them up to be successful long beyond my individual presence here? And then a lot of it also in that accountability structure, to the extent that they still have the power, and I think you saw this at Indiana with Bob Knight, you kind of get the, ah, we know that these things are problems, but um, and we need to fix them, but not right now. I mean, we're winning basketball games right now. We're winning national championships right now. We're getting thousands of people into the church seats over the weekend. We don't, we don't need to fix these problems right now. We can fix them further down the road. And inevitably, you find out that you know these problems fester, they become bigger problems, and they blow up in the way that... They did when Bob Knight choked Neil Reed or when Mark Driscoll did the Mark Driscoll things that you know about if you listened to that podcast. Thinking about leadership and the structures that are built around an organization is incredibly important. And thinking about, you know, yes, it is the point should be for a sports team to win games, but it should be doing it in a way that is sustainable and replicable. I think that lesson applies to any of the kind of, of tracks of, of life, whether it be churches or businesses. It matters how you do things, not just the end result you end up with. And that bias of only interpreting things by the, well, we got the result we wanted. So that means that the process worked. Sometimes it does not mean at all that the process worked. The process could have been incredibly flawed and just by happenstance, coincidence, whatever, accident, you end up with the result you wanted. You should have enough uh, introspection to be able to look back in that and say, if we repeated this, would we end up likely end up with the same outcome? And if the answer is no, you should think more about the process and how you got there. Yeah, I mean, not that it's the best example, but, uh, you know, look at the way players are treated in the NFL. Uh, If they end up even in their home life, um, you know, domestic violence, that sort of thing, they're suspended for half the season, whole season. They they hurt their entire team. They hurt their own career. Um, and yet, you know, you have coaches perhaps that uh, can be abusive towards the players or what, you know, like there's there's a standard that is not necessarily being universally applied. Um and it probably should be more harshly applied in the case of the players in the first place. But um, but this stuff does matter even for the winning. It shouldn't be done for the sake of winning. You should want virtue for the sake of virtue. It's literally the best thing in life. It's what you were made for. Um, but, uh, but it will actually help you be a better whatever you are and whatever you're doing. Um, and, yeah, sometimes you might end up losing a game uh, because you actually took the higher road. Uh, and did the moral path. Um, but in the long term, um, you're going to find so much more satisfaction out of life and so much more satisfaction out of that game that you love or that career, that vocation that you feel called to. Um, 
if you spend that time on yourself um, to, you know, uh, condition yourself, train yourself before you go out and try to lead other people. Let's go to our final topic. And this is a story, Dylan, that uh, you found and had shared with us. Uh, I'll read here from an article in USA Today. These former HBCU students owed their college nearly $10 million. The debt was just erased. On or around Monday, this is a couple weeks ago, nearly 3,000 former college students were expected to be getting letters with the kind of news millions of Americans probably wish they could receive right now that their outstanding debts had been cleared. The 2,777 former students attended Morehouse College, a historically black liberal arts school for men in Atlanta. And collectively, they owed Morehouse $9,707,827.67. Appreciate the specificity there. Through the fall 2022 term, some of the accounts dating back decades. With the help of the Debt Collective, a union of debtors, and in collaboration with the college, a 501c4 uh, known as the Rolling Jubilee Fund bought that debt out. This is a tiny sliver of the national student debt pie, and the action notably did not apply to any federal student loans, which nationwide now amount to more than $1.6 trillion, and for which payments resumed a few weeks ago after a years-long pandemic-era hiatus. This was a debt owed directly to the college, whether loans to attend, unpaid tuition, or even parking fines. Uh, Dylan, what stuck out to you about this story, at least also in the context of student debt forgiveness that we've discussed on this program a number right. of times. Yeah, it made me think of uh, you know John Lennon and Yoko Ono with the sign, you know, war is over if you want it, right? Student debt is over if civil society wants it. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they can cover the, the massive uh, total of student debt, but as far as those students or former students uh, who have found themselves uh, less gainfully employed than they were told they would be, um, who are really struggling uh, to keep up with their debt, things can be done about it. And we don't have to wait uh, for yet another failed executive order from President Biden, which there is currently, you know, work with the, I don't know if it's an executive order, but the Department of Education, uh, yet again, trying to forgive debt. Um, There's a case to be made that certain you know, people um, perhaps, you know, were sold a bill of goods, like quite literally. You go to, I, I co-wrote an article for Religion and Liberty um, online with uh, North Dakota state economist uh, James Catton, uh, and we looked into this, and there are actually some majors that getting a four-year degree, um, you have a, if you, if you are in one of those majors, you have a lower projected earnings of your lifetime than if you had just gotten a high school diploma. Um, so things are shifting. Now, that's not every major. It still is a signal mechanism one way or the other that it still tends to be beneficial, although a lot of the student debt problem is really people who went to college for a few years and then dropped out for whatever reasons. Life happened. They had a kid. They had, you know, um, they got divorced or, you know, what? there's all sorts of things that can happen. And then so you don't even get the degree, but you still have all the debt. Um, there are people in in hard times, and part of that, a big part of that for some of them is their student debt. Um, but things can be done. We don't have to sit around um, in all of those cases and wait for the government. There's such a thing as the private sector, and there's such a thing as the nonprofit sector, um, where people who are concerned about this can pool their resources together, can identify where the problem is in their communities, in the communities they care about, just like uh, this one did with Morehouse uh, and the, the, his, the historically black 
colleges. That's a very specific community, and they're looking out for each other, as all of us should be. Um, and so it stuck out to me in that, you know, you can have these political debates over, you know, oh, people should have to pay, which you do have a responsibility if you take out debt. Although, again, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're like, by the way, no calculation of risk. You know, I mean, they literally advertise the irresponsibility. Um, you also can't discharge. We talked about bankruptcy earlier. Um, in many cases, it's very, very difficult to discharge student debt in bankruptcy. So one of the things that makes other debt non-usurious from a Christian perspective, um, that it, it doesn't hang with you for your, your entire life um, and be this constant source of oppression is not true with a lot of student debt. Um, this is something that, that can be solved from the private sector um, if people want it. Um, if that, And maybe that's not the best use of charitable funding and charitable uh, work, um, although I'm not going to say one way or the other. I think if, if you think it is, do the work and, and see what you can do to help. Um, see, see who's already doing work to help. Clearly, there are some people um, already doing it. Um, so for me, I, I think it just it shows the importance of associational life, um, of just the, the broader understanding of society. It's not just market and state um, and it's not just market, state, and family, but there's this whole other sector, which is very, very, very important, uh, at least in the United States, where it's so vibrant still. Um, and it's something that I really think policymakers, if you care about this sort of thing, um, instead of saying, how can we, you know, forgive all the debt or whatever, maybe how can we, well, I don't want, I don't want them interfering too much, but how can we make sure there are no barriers to entry uh, for people who would be doing this sort of good work? Um, that's the sort of policy that I think um, people should get behind and care a lot more about, um, that people can rise to the occasion, we can take responsibility for our neighbor, we can be our brother's keeper, um, and we can identify those people in our communities, people that would take a ton of bureaucracy and a ton of waste for the government to try to find who really needs this help. Um, a nonprofit in a particular community for a particular group of people or a particular set of schools or whatever the case, far better equipped to do that. Um, and we could really transform uh, the state of our student debt crisis um, from the initiative of civil society rather than through some sort of government solution. So that's that's why I found the story um, really hopeful. Um, I, I hope that this is the first of many stories like this, that there's there's more to come. Uh, we'll see. The student loan crisis, I'm speaking as someone who has student debt, um, is one of those, I didn't say stupid, I said student. Thank you. Um, Nevertheless. <laughs> the stupid loan crisis. <laughs> Nevertheless. <laughs> yeah, I just got yelled at for, for saying the wrong word. Um, as someone who has this kind of debt, I, this is sort of student loan crisis management on the part of the government is kind of the quintessential I'm from the government and I'm here to help problem. Um, every time they have gotten into student debt as a problem, they have made it worse. So Obama pulled in all of the private lenders. So when I first got my student loans, it was from a private lender with a government you know, contract. Uh, under Obama's administration, they pulled it all back into the federal government. So it just makes it absolutely impossible to deal with them. 
Um, at one point in time, I got a knock on my credit because I had 89 cents left on one of my loans and the government couldn't process any kind of payment less than a dollar. So I had to wait until I had late fees that got me over a dollar to then pay the amount, which was insane and, and knocked my credit score. So it was one of those like, you can't deal with the federal government. But it's also a case of when you have somebody you don't like, the federal government moves very quickly. In the Obama administration, they had this thing called the gainful employment rule, but it only employed, applied to for-profit schools. So like your DeVry University, your art institutes, these kind of schools that were taking federal money and they were for-profit institutions, the Obama administration came through and said, no, you cannot, we will not give you federal funds. We will not allow you to be on the GI Bill unless you can prove to us that your diploma means that within a certain amount of time, 40 or 60% of the people who graduate are then employed in that field and they're employed in a way that they can live with. Um, and that really revolutionized for-profit schools. Um, but the Obama administration didn't apply it to not-for-profit schools. So certainly if you go to the University of Michigan and you get a gender studies degree and there's like six gender studies jobs and there's no way you're ever going to pay back that $180,000 that you took on to get this bachelor's degree that will not produce a livable wage, um, that was exercised. They said, you know, we're not even going to look at not-for-profit colleges because they're not fit. We don't have to worry about it. Um, and of course, they're allied with, you know, the English departments and and that becomes a a job product in and of itself, which now we see the results of um, putting kids through that and keeping professors there forever. But there are solutions here that the government could do, but it doesn't want to do because it's self-interested. So it really is sort of the quintessential, do not let the government make the solution here because the government solution is going to be worse than the problem is right now. So to Emily's point as well, this this goes all the way back to the, the 1980s. So there, there were, as part of the Great Society, there were income-based, you know, means-tested grants uh, for students in the 1970s, which I am for. I think that would be great. In the 1980s, they said, well, wait a minute, shouldn't college be for everyone? So the government started getting into the loan business, and it wasn't means-tested. It wasn't specific. They opened it to everybody. And the in inflation of college prices, in which the Obama administration admitted to this uh, several years ago. I wrote uh, something again for, for Acton. Um, they said this is way outpaced inflation, uh, the cost of a college degree. Um, and part of that is the government just getting into it and supplying the money. So now people didn't have to figure out, okay, can we afford college or not? Should I take a few years off to work? Um, do I need to find a patron to help me out? It was just sign here. Mr. 18-year-old, and we'll give you the money, and uh, you can figure out how to pay it back later. And at the same time, it's not just the government, but it is all of these schools complicit in this, all of these schools taking the federal money and building their budgets out, um, building especially their administrative uh, staffing and salaries out uh, with the expectation that this money will always keep coming. Um, I would love to see, and I, I, I will say, Although I do think it's in to it's total political opportunism. Um, Biden started this in uh, 2022 when there was an election, uh, a midterm election, uh, and trying to influence uh, the outcome there um, with an executive order that would certainly and was uh, get get struck down. Um, nevertheless, 
I like that he's saying, hey, the government needs to take some responsibility for this. What it should do is just start imposing more limits on who can get loans and reform bankruptcy laws so that if people can't pay them off, uh, they can restructure their debt. Um, that would be a great way of the government taking responsibility for its role in this crisis, which it absolutely has a role. It would also be a great way of now shifting some of the costs onto these universities and colleges, which have become totally complicit in this, in that now, hey, guess what? Uh, you know, Johnny student went bankrupt. You're not getting your money, um, right? You know, like we have to find a way um, to penalize schools for perpetuating this. Um, so they have to change. We also, to get back to our original discussion, um, we need to be more comfortable with failure. Um, and we are seeing this a little bit. I believe it's North North Carolina State uh, University. I can't remember the one, um, but there, there's one that that I mean, their debts have gotten so out of control that they are massively downsizing. Um, it's probably not going to be enough, which what they're current proposing, but we'll see where it goes from there. Um, but I, I see this happening in general, and it's the sort of thing that either it's going to be really, really bad, and it might almost be too late, but either it's going to be really, really bad when it comes, or we start letting it happen now. Um, we start We start forcing people to confront it before it gets so bad that it becomes this economy-wide catastrophe. Um, I would love to see a move in that direction. I, if the government really wants to take responsibility, it's the sort of thing that, yeah, it might not help you win uh, the next coming election, but it will help a lot of Americans. And as we just talked about, doing the right thing tends to be the long-term measure of success. I wish everybody else who uh, was listening to this podcast could have enjoyed, as I did, looking up and seeing um, that it appeared Emily had been replaced as a co-host of this podcast by a cat, uh, which was delightfully fuzzy. Um, I, I, I think there are, Dylan, you kind of hinted at it there, echoes of the first two conversations we had in this story. First of all, the lending of money out for students to get degrees with no real plan for how they're going to pay it back and how they're going to be successful in the long run, which is very similar to the conversation we had about venture capital funding of enterprises like WeWork, where there was just never really a clear, this is how we're going to become profitable. This is how this whole thing is going to work. It very much flowed from the, but doesn't this seem like such a great idea? And we get a lot of that when it comes to college, that wouldn't it be a really great idea if everybody went to college? And Everybody is expected in response to that to say, yes, of course, it would be a great idea if everybody went to college. And then it takes a couple cranky people like us to say, actually, is that a really great idea? Is it a good idea for everyone to go to college? The idea of what college is supposed to accomplish, of what you're supposed to get when you leave with that degree. If everybody has one, doesn't that just amount to some kind of, you know, inflation of those credentials uh, that they aren't and they end up not being worth nearly as much at the end? end because now everybody has the same qualification. I, I remember this as one of the first times that I figured out, you know, the law of supply and demand when I was, you know, younger and somebody made an argument to me about, you know, how isn't it just terrible that teachers are so important and they're only paid whatever the number was at the time that they claimed that all teachers were paid. And Alex Rodriguez gets paid like $300 million to hit baseballs. And it's like, well, at any given time, there are a couple hundred people qualified to do what Alex Rodriguez does for a living, and very, very few of them as good at it as he is, 
And at any given time, there are millions of people qualified to be teachers. I went to school with plenty of people as music educators who I knew who the first thought I had when I found out they were a music ed major was, I can't believe you're going to be standing in front of a classroom someday. But they don't go through that same kind of evaluation. There is way more supply than there was demand in that case. Um, and the uh, the second story about Bobby Knight, one of the points I made there is that, like, you know, we have to fix this, but not right now. Uh, very much following what you were describing, Dylan, of the the way that the government has thought about this. Like, this is a problem. All right, good. First, you know, step one, you have recognized that there is a problem. We need to fix this. And the form that the fix typically comes in is the, well, we're going to forgive all of the student debt, but they make no proposals for changes to the system that got us into this whole problem in the first place. So all you're going to do the day after you forgive all of that debt is start replicating the problem all over again if you're not going to make any kind of adjustments to the system itself that you need to fix for this to make sense. So I think this is a great story. I'm glad you brought it to our attention. And we see that there are ways that this can be addressed by people closer to the problem who understand the problem better without the uh, fear that will be – that should be created by, as Emily said, people showing up and saying, I'm from the government and yeah, I'm here by to people, help. By people doing the right thing on their own. Yeah. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website – Please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Emily. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.